House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. All right, we are back. Now, joining us on the phone, we have the author of Reign of Injustice. We've got David M. Beers. Thank you for being here. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, yeah, I had to use your middle initial there because I noticed there's another David Beers that writes. Yeah, I, I discovered that recently myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Uh, yeah, there's another Al Warren, too, out there. that he's, He writes, uh, he's a foot doctor, so... Um, I always get that mix up there. <laughs> Foot doctor mm. and murder, it's the same thing. <laughs> so now, it, 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 this is the first time you've been on this show, so maybe for listeners, uh, who are you and, and what did you do before writing this book? Well, uh, early in my career, I, I, I worked as a, after I got out of the service, I was in the Marine Corps for six years, and then I... Uh, became a member of the New York State Police, where I worked as a, a, a trooper and then later as an investigator. And I worked in several different capacities, um, narcotics, uh, major crimes, violent felony warrants, and then uh, I ended up in uh, the forensics unit, you know, doing crime scene investigation. And when I left state service, um, the, the kind of na the natural transition for me was to do the same type of work only in the private sector, so I started doing criminal defense work. <clears throat> and I'd been working in that capacity for about six years when when this particular case came along, the one that's the topic of my book. And uh, so I worked, uh, I was hired by uh, Cal Harris um, through his attorney, uh, Joe Colley, um, and initially, uh, it was a missing persons case, um, and, it, and it remained a missing persons case for about four years uh, before uh, uh, Cal was eventually charged with uh, with murder. And then it was, of course, reclassified as a as a murder case. But uh, what was unusual about it was that uh, you know Cal initially, when I was hired, he hadn't been charged with anything, so we weren't really entitled to any like discovery material or anything. So I was kind of working blind uh, with a twofold objective, trying to find Michelle and also to develop information to uh, create a defense for Cal, should he be charged. So that was in uh, uh, September of 2001. Uh, in fact, his wife went missing just the day after 9-11. And I was hired uh, a week later. Uh, and then I remained involved uh, from that point on. And what became interesting about the case is that it, it ends up getting prolonged for 15 years. Uh, he went on he went on trial uh, four different times over a period of 15 years, and uh, he was convicted twice, uh, both of which were overturned. Then there was a third trial, which was a mistrial, and eventually there was a fourth trial, and he, and he was uh, acquitted. Um, and it was just a, a story that needed to be told. Yeah. yeah I was going to, now, being a, um, a, a cop, a policeman, and going into yeah. investigating for a defense, um, mm -hmm. it, it, was that a conflict of your, um, how do I say it? Like, uh, it seems to me like cops, not in a bad way, but you, you're out there um, trying to uh, 
catch the bad guy and solve crimes. Um, yes. So, in in essence, when you work for the defense, you're working for someone that's probably being accused or being charged with a crime. So, isn't that kind mm -hmm. of counter to what you're doing? I mean, does that cause a conflict in you? Now, for me, it did not. Uh, not at all. Um, and, and the reason, there's actually, there's actually a reason for that uh, with me. Uh, when I was with the state police, uh, I was with them for, let's see, I joined in 77. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard of this, you know, way out in California or not, but in uh, the early 90s, there was a there was a scandal in the New York State Police called the the, the Troop C evidence tampering scandal, and and I got caught up in that, uh, and that that's a whole other story in and of itself. Um, but as a result, I was I ended up getting even though I was initially cleared of any wrongdoing, I was initially uh, later I was charged with felony crimes associated with my work, and uh, after a two year legal battle. Uh, I was exonerated of, of all, all the charges, um, but the damage was done, and uh, so the police, they fired me. So I I wasn't convicted of anything, so I, I transitioned all my training and experience in the private sector, uh, and I didn't have a problem whatsoever in, in doing defense work, uh, especially in light of what I had just gone through myself and defending myself. I realized that uh, there's a need for... Uh, for that type of work. Now, now this particular case, um, um, and that's the reason I'm going to bring up the next question. Um, this particular case, where he was uh, tried four times for the mm -hmm. same crime, um, right? And and there's a lot of talk of this, uh, you know, um, on radio shows and TV and all this sort of stuff that um, sure. that the prosecutors um, don't want to lose so badly and it's not even about the crime that once they get something in their mind they're going to they're going to take that all the way to the end because the, the, you know it, it doesn't really matter what new evidence comes in they're just so hung up on this this person is guilty um yes it, it, so working on both sides do you understand that do you believe that sort of is is there something to that yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I never, I never uh, really saw it that way when I was a police officer. It, it really wasn't until I started doing defense work that I realized um, that there, there were oftentimes uh, another side to the story, and uh, um, and there were uh, cases that I worked on where I felt that an injustice had been done and, and an innocent person had been charged. Um, but when I was a police officer, I never saw it that way. I, I, I don't know, just. <laughs> you, you kind of look at things differently when, when you're a police officer. But uh, after what happened to me, I started looking at things very uh, conscientiously and, and objectively, and um, and I started to realize that, you know, they, they do make mistakes, and uh, and they do try to uh, maintain uh, their, their, their convictions, especially if someone is uh, comes back on appeal uh, where there's new evidence, they, they just... Um, kind of ignore that and, and, and try to salvage their case any way they can. Yeah, I, I you know, it's kind of crazy because um, I've come across it myself in some of my research and writing about uh, um, 
uh, some some police and police that I really like too, um, having a mm-hmm. um, a definite opinion on something and that's it no matter what that you know yeah. they just hold on to it and I, I I could never quite understand that because um, I, it's not that I'm thinking that they need to get a certain amount of convictions or any of this stuff like that clear rates mm-hmm. it, it was just that they actually really believed wholeheartedly against some people that ended up not being true and it's just yeah you know it's kind of crazy i'm not because we're just all human we all make mistakes so yeah you know it's, now that was the case here to, to some degree but the but there was other matters involved too there was a conflict of interest by the the lead investigator uh which which contributed to the to the way the investigation was uh, was conducted um, so, we, so the, when, the focus was on Cal Harris right from the get-go. When, well, you know, then I guess that's common. Like when you have a married couple and they're, they're going through a divorce or just finished the divorce, um, yeah, that's kind of a common thing. If if, if the wife sure. goes missing or turns up dead somewhere yep. down the road, it's kind of uh, you look at the husband, you look at maybe parents, brothers, you know, sure. people closest. So that's yep. not too unusual. Um, so no. this this couple was was actually divorced then when this happened. No, no, they weren't. They were in the process of divorce. Okay, and it uh, hadn't been finalized yet. And you say that so um, so they were they were still living together and and taking care of the kids. Um, yeah, they had four small children. Uh, they were still living in the same marital home, although you know uh, uh, his wife was sleeping downstairs, he was sleeping upstairs. So, but other than that, they they were coexisting and. Uh, but mostly just for the benefit of the children until the divorce was final. So and now, did, were you able to find out about the area? Like, were, did the neighbors think they got along fine, or was there problems? Was there fights there a lot? Uh, how was their living situation? Yeah, there, there was a lot of uh, fighting, a lot of a lot of uh, heated arguments, especially once. Uh, once uh, his wife Michelle filed for divorce, uh, there was a lot of heated arguments, uh, uh, and he he was trying to do whatever he could to try to reconcile the, mar- the marriage, but it wasn't working. But it did result in a lot of uh, heated arguments, and it had been witnessed by by several people, um, babysitters, uh, coworkers, um, so and family members. So yeah, yeah there was a history of uh, of a lot of uh, heated arguments. But, but nobody was aware of anything physical that had happened. Right. Yeah, but now she 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 had taken on a new boyfriend, right? She was seeing someone new. Yeah. Um, uh, she'd taken on a new boyfriend about six months before she disappeared. He, she, she'd actually met him at a, a, a bar. Uh, he was from Philadelphia. Uh, him, him and his family uh, came up to the area to, to do some hunting. And it was just over the border in Pennsylvania. And uh, but they'd come into town to to drink afterwards, and then she met him there, and they hit it off and uh, started a relationship. He was like twelve years younger, uh, and then eventually that relationship turned into uh, a little more serious. They started meeting in the Poconos for some weekend rendezvous, uh, and then and then by June of that year. Um, he packed his bags and uh, left his girlfriend, his family, his job in Philly, and then moved to New York to to be with Michelle, and uh, found himself an apartment and a job, and uh, and started seeing her on a more regular basis. Now, and if I understand right, um, 
she had worked the night she went missing, went for drinks, and then went to this boyfriend's place. And went, that's correct. And, she, uh, yep. Okay. Yeah, and I was going to say, and that's the last she was seen of. Yeah, actually, so, so the boyfriend was the was the last one to see her alive, supposedly. So now, now I'm just, of course, I, I've never been a cop, but my first thinking would be to uh, check out that boyfriend as well as the husband, you know, ex-husband. Sure. Um, was he looked at at all? Not really. Uh, not not as not as thoroughly as as he should have been. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the one of the key things that that we argued was the fact that. Uh, since he was the last one to see her alive, and it was only his word that, that she left when he said she did. You know, they never did a forensic exam of his house or his car or of his person, even though they, they went over there and looked around a little bit with his permission. Um, and the, the, the only the only thing they actually did to eliminate him was was uh, have him uh, take a polygraph, which he, which he passed. Okay. Um, but other than that, you know, they they really didn't follow through with 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 the normal elimination uh, protocol, and and the, and they she, they found out later she had a, a relationship, another sexual relationship with one of her coworkers, and they they never uh, eliminated him properly either, uh, other than the polygraph. So well, they they just kind of abbreviated the elimination process, if you will. Well, did they give the uh, ex-husband or soon-to-be ex-husband a um, polygraph as well, or just those two? Well, they asked him to, but his attorney wouldn't let him. Okay. At the time, uh, so no. Mm. Well, you know, I, I would think um, if this guy was serious enough to have left his girlfriend and and moved to New York to be around her, uh, that yeah. he he would be just as uh, a viable a candidate. Because you know she's still living with the ex-husband or soon to be, and the kids, and that's yeah. got you know that got to be that's got to be uh, strenuous as well on him. So uh, I would see them both being up for candidates for go, for her going missing. But yeah, yeah, absolutely, because he's certainly a, a significant other in her life, and he uh, made sacrifices to come to New York to be with her and. Uh, he even uh, loaned her five thousand dollars to help her make a down payment on a new home that he thought he would eventually be living in with her. So his his expectations of, of how the relationship was going was much greater than hers. He had expectations of, of marriage and, and living together, uh, but uh, Michelle's friends and family said no, it wasn't that serious. Uh, so there was a conflict there. So, but we were, you know, the defense was certainly looking at at the boyfriend as as a suspect early on. Well, you know, I'm just find that curious because if he's the last to see her, or I mean, did did he ever claim that she came over that night? Did he agree with that and that she left? Yeah, he did agree with that, and there was there was actually, uh, uh, yeah, uh, he, he said that she did come over that night. She she came over. Uh, she got out of work around nine. Had a, had a drink with a coworker until about nine fifteen or so, uh, maybe nine thirty, and then she left and, and went to the boyfriend's house. Uh, and getting there about quarter to uh, ten, and then she stayed. And according to him, stayed till about eleven fifteen. And, and he walked her out to her van. She got in, and he assumed she was on, on her way home. 
Wow. That was his story. Yeah. Well, so we know she was there. And then um, yeah. now I found a, another part when I was uh, reading. I, I, now apparently uh, Cal Harris got up the next morning and she wasn't around and he needed help with the kids. So he called um, this uh, uh, Thayer. Is that her name? Yeah. Yeah, and, Barb, Barb Thayer was an adult babysitter. And so when that uh, Barb Thayer came down the driveway, she saw... Um, the 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 wife Michelle's van sitting at the top of the driveway. Yeah, and you got to understand the driveway to their house is a quarter mile long. Okay. Uh, and the the road, the, the main road that goes by their house is just a dirt road. Or at least it was at the time. So at the end of their driveway, you you can't even see their house. Uh, but but that's where Michelle's van was parked uh, with the nose into the driveway. So when Barb Thayer got there, she saw it and stopped, got out, looked through it. The the the, the doors were unlocked, so she looked through it, and, uh, thinking maybe Michelle was in there or sleeping it off or whatever. And uh, but when she realized that nobody was there, she got back in her car and drove in uh, to the house and and, uh, and then went in and, and talked to Cal and told him uh, what she found. Wow! See, that's interesting too, because that would almost seemed like someone drove it there and left it. Yeah, absolutely. The keys were still in it. Right. So uh, yep. it, it, they would know where she lived, too. So that's another. Yeah. Well, that's so crazy. The, so the purse was missing. <laughs> oh, well, of course. <laughs> purse um, and jewelry, all that was missing, though. Yeah, yeah. So now what, what was it that um, the prosecutors or the police investigating um, what was the actual piece of evidence or thing that made them focus on Cal and kind of drop um, the, the boyfriend and and the squeeze at work? Yeah. Well, initially it was Cal's character issues and his behavior afterwards. Um, but when forensic investigators were looking through the house uh, uh, a few days later, uh, they found some specks of blood. Uh, on the garage floor and and uh, a little entryway just inside the uh, kitchen area, uh, you know, leading from the garage. And they're really tiny. I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, eighth of an inch at the most. But but several several different areas that they identified. And um, so they, they tested them initially, uh, field tested them, and they came back positive for blood. Uh, and then they, then they started taking pictures of them. And then they submitted him to the lab, and 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 eventually they they confirmed that the um, that at least some of the blood was belonged to Michelle. But that was the extent of it. They they brought in forensic experts from uh, the Albany lab in, in New York, and uh, you know treated the areas with uh, fluorescein to see if they could enhance the um, the blood because they they thought it may have been cleaned up. Uh, but their enhancement techniques uh, didn't produce anything. Uh, so other than the, those few specks of blood, that's all there was. And they knew that within the first couple of days. Um, but Cal wasn't uh, indicted for another four years. I, I think they, they had hoped that maybe Michelle would be found, uh, but all of their search efforts uh, you know, turned up nothing. Uh, so they, they decided, for whatever reason, to, to move forward with, with what little they had, and they indicted him four years later for, for murder. 
So, so basically, they really had nothing but um, some of her blood. Um, yeah, and, and very, very little. We're we're talking, you know, even the experts uh, agreed that it was you know ten drops or less. So you know, there there certainly wasn't enough to suggest that someone was seriously injured or killed. And then the other issue was the um, was the age of the blood because the, the by the time the police got there, of course, the blood was dried. And they took pictures of it, but otherwise they didn't secure the blood uh, from the original surfaces. They, all they had was photographs, and the photographs they took were lousy, really lousy. They had troubles with uh, flash and exposure, and uh, so it was difficult to determine what the actual color was. Um, so there was a the, there was a big big issue over the over the uh, age uh, of the blood. Um, and, and because the first pictures they took were at least four days after Michelle was missing, and uh, but later they they got an expert to say it was just within a couple days or a few days, <laughs> but uh, that was later. It was later decided that he he couldn't say that because there there was no um, scientific means to to determine that. Uh, so so, the, so our theory was that she she'd been injured accidentally as some prior date and time and and but nobody knew about it and uh she bled on the floor and then cleaned it up and and that's what they found uh, because there was nothing to suggest that it was anything more than that so that that was the dissonance the uh the murder assault theory versus the innocent explanation theory well what did they use like they must have framed cal harris as something um you know evil or uh, something gone wrong enough to where he wanted to uh kill his wife while the kids were at home sleeping and do something with the body and clean up or, or something all by morning. Um, so what was it? Like, did, did, did they say she was going to get money? Was she, what was the, the big catch? To yeah, their, 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 their theory that his motive was financial, uh, that he, he was going to have to pay out, uh, uh, big bucks uh, because he he owned a, he owned a car dealership so he was he was very wealthy, um, and 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 their their theory was that he he feared losing the the dealership or or his wealth uh, to, to to settle the divorce and that, and that was why he killed her, um, and that and their their theory also was that he'd been planning it for months likely from right after she filed for the divorce. <laughs> but, but yet, you know, the, the big problem with that theory was, you know, why wouldn't if, if he planned this all out, you know, why, why would why wouldn't he have included some type of alibi? Um, but instead, he, he puts himself directly in a uh, indefensible uh, position where he had like six hours of, of opportunity uh, to, to to do the deed because he's home alone with the kids. From uh, like six thirty at night until seven o'clock the next morning, <laughs> and, and they, their theory was she came home at midnight and he killed her sometime right after she arrived, and then cleaned it up, disposed of the body, and drove her car out to the end of the driveway and left it there. And uh, hmm. that that seems strange. That that seems um, it is, and that seems like an awful big effort. He would have had it all. He had to have it all planned and right down to. Yeah. I mean, because he he where he did with the body, if if it was like they said, um, it couldn't have been that far away. No, like he had. 
uh, like I said, they, they had about 250 acres of property. Right. And, and most of it, most of it was densely covered with woods. There was a, there was a large lake there and a pond. Of course, they, they searched those thoroughly with, with every means available to them and then came up empty. They had the forest rangers there and the divers and the dogs and the helicopter, you know, you name it. Uh, so they did a thorough, very thorough job searching, but came up with nothing. Um, hmm. and, just... and he did own, he owned some ATVs, so he, so he, he had the means available to him to, uh, to transport a body, uh, out, out into the woods. Uh, but they, they covered the woods, uh, thoroughly and they came up with nothing. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, anything's possible, right? I mean, but. Yeah, yeah. But you you know you kind of have to go with, with. So they actually yeah. um, took him to trial on that. Just kind of they framed him as a yeah. person that didn't want to lose uh, money because yeah. of an ex yeah. and blah 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 and and that. So that's kind of crazy. Um, so yeah, but they, they were claiming they, that he had control issues, you know, and she he didn't like that she was uh, um, she had a boyfriend and she was out partying and that type of thing and. Uh, but they, they, the the physical evidence they had was very very weak at best. So they they needed something more. So they threw in his his character issues. Cal, Cal was very uh, outspoken, arrogant, uh, had anger issues. Uh, so they they brought in all that negative uh, those negative character issues to throw in and, and and try to convince the jury that you know this is a bad guy. And and they they did that very successfully. Yeah, you know, it seems to be the the way um, the world is right now, you know, the, the way it's going, uh, you know, yeah. people love to jump on it, and it's easy to hate, much yeah. easier than to uh, to like. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. Um, so they actually convicted him um, two or three times, was it? Two, two times, uh, yeah. There was a, it, it, it was interesting the way it played out, because after the, the first conviction, because uh, they, they He'd been out on bail prior to that, so he, they took him into custody immediately, put him in jail. And, and within a couple of hours, uh, the defense got a call from this new witness who, uh, who revealed some uh, crucial new evidence that, uh, that no one was aware of at the time. And, and that, that was a turning point that, that led to uh, the first conviction getting tossed out and, and, and granting him a second trial. Hmm. So what? And, you, and the, the, I was going to say this new the, the new evidence was it something really substantial or very substantial? Actually, it was a, it was a an eyewitness who um, had actually seen uh, Michelle at the foot of her driveway uh, at around six a.m. that 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 next morning, um, uh, arguing with another man, not her husband. Uh, and, and also a, a, a vehicle that, that he described uh, as a black or dark blue pickup truck. This, this happened to be, a, it was a farmer, his name was Kevin Tubbs, and he was he was hauling a hay wagon up the road where, where the Harris's lived, and as he's going by the Harris driveway, he sees this pickup truck sticking out in the road at an angle. And he's got this nine-foot-wide hay wagon he's trying to get by without slipping off into the ditch on the other side so he, he said he was just creeping by and and as he's doing that he looks over off his right front fender and, and he sees uh, this young man in his 20s with dark hair and and a woman that 
looked like Michelle Harris uh, standing there, and it looked like she'd been crying. Uh, and then he, he just kind of continued on his way and, and didn't think much of it. But then when he, he was actually following the case uh, in the newspaper when it went to trial you know, years later, and, and, he, and he realized that what he had seen was important. So he, he called the defense, uh, Cal's attorney, and, and told him what happened. And so we, we met with him and went through the whole scenario. And uh, so that was that was the new evidence that uh, that led to the first conviction getting thrown out. So did, were you able to place who that man with the pickup truck would be? Yes. Um, but the, but the but the police were all over this. They 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 knew that their uh, conviction was in jeopardy, and so they they were pulling out all the stops to try to discredit uh, the new witness rather rather than investigate what he had seen. Uh, so it, it became my job to try to find out who this person was at the end of the driveway. And uh, of course, my my first thought was that it was the boyfriend, right? Because uh, he fit the description, but but he didn't own a vehicle. That, that matched that description. And then I checked everything I could to, uh, to find somebody that may have loaned him a vehicle or something that looked like that, and I couldn't find him. Um, uh, but but then, that, then we had another witness call us, call the defense, and, and provided some additional information uh, about uh, uh, two men from Texas uh, who had... Uh, uh, worked at this steel plant in uh, in Waverly, New York, not far from uh, where Michelle worked, and, and they used to frequent the restaurant where she worked. And not long after she uh, went missing, they they uh, went back to Texas. So we met with him and, and got that information and, and and started to develop that. And uh, and as a result, um, we were able to identify who these two men were. Uh, and it turned, as it turned out, one of them, his name was Stacy Stewart, had actually been an early suspect uh, in the police investigation. But, but the information that, that was in the police lead was very vague. So there wasn't a lot there to work with. But there was enough there to, to show that he fit the description of the man, and as well as uh, he owned a truck that, that fit the description as well. So the, the so the red flags started popping up on on Stacy Stewart, um, and and I and I just kind of picked it up from there, and everything started falling into place. I started I went to where he used to work and uh, talked to coworkers, and we subpoenaed his time cards and, and that type of thing. And uh, just one thing led to another, and everything pointed to pointed to him. Uh, but the police had no interest in in uh, in, in pursuing that information. No, that, and that brings me back to that. Why, why does that happen in your I, I don't know. I, I think, I, I think uh, Alan, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, uh, pride, ego, uh, reputations that, that were uh, on the line. They, they don't want to admit that they made a mistake or that they were wrong. Uh, or probably more importantly, because uh, it, it, was, uh, it was discovered by someone other than themselves. They, they were really upset that, that this witness had gone to the defense first rather than right. them. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. 
And, and, and <laughs> I, but I understand that, right? You know, and, and yeah. the pride thing and all that stuff. But, yeah. you know, I think the reality is the, I think the majority of us in the public would like our cops better if they did make mistakes and did own up to it because it makes them more human because they're just human. Yeah. There's going to be problems. I, uh, yeah. You know, I, you can't expect everyone to be, you can't expect them to be perfect. You want their integrity to be there, but, yeah. you know, perfection is just not something that, uh, you know, so I, I personally, I think I would appreciate it better if they said, oh, you know what, there is some other evidence. Maybe we weren't correct. Yeah. I don't know. Well, that, that was it's... my whole position, you know, the, uh, um, uh... They should have been more receptive to that. And, and if, if it turned out that somebody else did do it, I mean, what's, what's wrong with, uh, admitting that, hey, we were wrong and, 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 and we're, we're going to take care of this. I, I, like you said, I think that would, that would go a long ways to earn a little more respect with, amongst members of the community. Well, yeah, because, uh, you know, if someone intentionally changes evidence and, 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 and a cop does this under, under, you know, to disguise and make something fake to put someone away. That's one thing, right? That's that's bad. Yeah, yeah. But you know, just to just to have a belief and you have a gut feeling. I mean, cops have gut feelings. That's what they do. Yeah. And and to believe someone did it, that's fine. But if you make a mistake, well, it happens. You know, yeah, it's, yeah it does. You know, that's just that's that, maybe I'm just being naive and you know the perfect world and everything. But yeah. just. I think it would save a lot of these types of problems, you know. So yeah, I, I um, agree. Uh, so what happened? So he, you know, he had he had two of them thrown out, and and what happened on the third trial? Well, the the the, uh, the second trial, uh, even with the new witness, um, he was still convicted. They 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 really went on the attack of the new witness, and he got him mad and angry, and he was pounding his fist and. Um, so they, uh, ended up convicting him a second time. And this time he, uh, was sentenced to, you know, 25 years to life in state prison. So off he went and, um, it, you know, he was in prison for about three years while the appeal was being, being written. And then, uh, uh, that, that conviction was overturned as well for, for uh, some legal issues. So he was released from prison and came back. Um, and was granted a third trial, and at this time uh, in, a, in a new venue, fortunately, because he, the first two were in a this small little town where everybody knew him and, and the fact that he had been convicted once and twice. Uh, so they, they finally granted a change of venue uh, and, and, and retried him in a, in a third trial about 125 miles away up in Harry County, New York, which is up near Albany. And, uh, then that trial, uh, by then he, he'd gotten a new attorney, uh, a little more aggressive attorney. His name was Bruce Barquette from, uh, Long Island. And, uh, that trial, uh, went on for about 11 weeks. Um, and then the jury deliberated for about 11 days, uh, and couldn't reach a verdict, even though the, the judge had sent him back in a couple of times uh, uh, to try and reach a verdict. They, they couldn't. They were, they were pretty much split right down the middle. Um, so that was a mistrial. <laughs> so within within a couple of days, the DA decided that he was going to move forward with a fourth trial. 
and and that's what they did. Only only this time the 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 big difference. It was kind of a ballsy move, if you will. But uh, uh, Cal decided he he wanted to go with a, a bench trial. Uh, where just the the judge would be the sole trier of facts, and uh, as it turned out, that 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 was uh, a wise decision. Uh, so the fourth trial uh, was held, and uh, in the end, uh, the judge deliberated about three days and came back and, and found him not guilty. Wow! But 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 a lot a lot had happened in the interim of, of between the second and third trial, and and then again between the third and fourth trial. Um, there, there was an issue regarding uh, new evidence that we found uh, and, and new witnesses, and we had argued to allow uh, what they call third-party culpability, um, where, where, where it, it suggested that someone other than Cal was responsible, and uh, we, we'd asked to use that information in the third trial, but it was denied. But then the, we, we renewed our request in the fourth trial, Armed with some additional uh, supporting evidence, and uh, and the judge granted it. So he we, we were able to bring in some uh, witnesses that that supported third party culpability relative to the to the men from Texas, uh, and some additional evidence that we found. Um, and, I, and I think that was kind of the, the what pushed it over the edge for the judge uh, to find him not guilty. Wow, I was going to say so. Out of these four trials in all these years. Um, how has this affected Cal Harris' life? It, it has turned it upside down. You know, he, uh, he he's still trying to get his business back. Um, yeah, but the one thing he you know he had four small children at the time, and they're all adults now, and, and they're really uh, uh, they're very supportive of their dad. Uh, during the last two trials, they were there every day with him, um, sitting there watching the whole proceedings, and uh, very supportive of him. They're they're all well-educated, polite uh, young men and women. And uh, uh, so he did a nice job with his kids, despite the fact that he was in prison and, and had to have some help from family and friends. Um, but, yeah, it, it tore him apart. You know, he was yanked away uh, like three different times from his kids. And, uh, well, and financially uh, it must have been brutal. Oh, the financial burden was brutal. I mean, the, uh, I, I have no clue what what, what is uh, what he ended up spending, but... Uh, I know just just the, you know the work I did just as a private investigator was 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 a lot. I, I can't even imagine what the attorney fees and expert fees and transportation fees and all that was. Uh, it, it had to be astronomical. And who would have to take care of the kids when he was um, in prison? He uh, he had an aunt. Um, his, his aunt and and her husband uh, were the were the caretakers for the children. Made sure they. They lived with them, and they got into school and that type of thing. And then they took him up to prison every weekend to see their dad. And uh, so he stayed in touch with them uh, on a regular basis. Uh, but but his aunt and uncle were pretty instrumental in in, uh, in raising the kids for those three years he was in prison. Hmm. Wow, that's uh, incredible. So so now he also got um, charged with some sort of um, other charge after I saw that. Uh, when researching the case, yeah, well, that, as far as I know, that matter is still pending, and, and it's been it's been years. So I, I don't know what the status of that is. I, I it's almost like it uh, it gotten forgotten. 
um, because it, it should have been gone through the court system by now. And the and the, um, the arresting officer in that case uh, had worked on his murder case, uh, but he since retired. So I don't know what the <laughs> what, what's going to happen as a result of that. It was it was a it was a alleged stalking case. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I I got that, and I kind of thought, well, this is a really weird behavior. They, I read that he had s- s- drove up and he was outside of this officer's house for an hour filming them, him and the kids, and all this stuff. What was that all about? Was did he have a problem with that officer? Was there some sort of thing going on? Actually, no. Actually, there's there's more more to the story than that. That that's the version that gets released, but. Uh, what had actually happened was uh, uh, Cal was trying to sell uh, a drone that, that he had owned. And, and he uh, apparently he got information from someone up where this happened that they, they were interested in purchasing it. <laughs> First thing, I think he might have been set up. But anyway, he goes up there to this address where he's supposed to meet this guy to sell him his drone. So he's sitting there waiting uh, for this guy. And, and, and nobody shows up. As it turns out, it just happened to be uh, right across the street from where this officer lived. Now, now that's Cal's story. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, and then they, the officer sees him there and he reports it, and they end up having having Cal arrested. And uh, they, they they impounded his car, and, and he had he had a he had a dash cam on his car on the dash, and they seized that. Um, so you, so you would think if, uh, if there was something incriminating there, they, they'd be using it against him. But I, I, uh, I don't know what they have because it was never disclosed. And then, like I said, that case is, that was over two years ago and that's been, uh, wow. that, it, it just kind of disappeared. I, I don't know what's happened to it. That's kind of crazy. Um, he does, Cal. He does have some anger issues, and, and I, I, I can understand that. He, he went through a lot, and uh, uh, from something he didn't do, and uh, you know, they, they pursued him, targeted him, hunted him down, and and he endured this for fifteen years. So I can understand why he why he's angry, well, but, yeah, but he has I trouble. Mean, he has trouble controlling his anger. Yeah, but that's that's yeah. you know interrupted his life uh, and his kids' yeah. lives. And, yeah. and everything, right? I mean, uh, yeah. took a big chunk out of his life. So, yeah. um, uh, do you know what his situation is like now? Is he like uh, getting uh, in with a new relationship or anything like that? Uh, no, no, I really don't know. I don't, I don't uh, touch base with him too often. You know, we, we uh, we're both on Facebook and that type of thing, but not not too often. Uh, so I'm not sure what he's doing. I know he sold the house. That he lived in and then bought a smaller house. Um, but he's still in town. Um, I've actually run into him on the golf course a couple of times. So he, he's, he's still got his, uh, circle of friends, the ones who, who, uh, stuck with him and, and didn't abandon him. There were some who did. Um, and, and his kids are college age now. Uh, and as far as I know, they're doing well. So, um, he seems to be pretty upbeat, but he, but he, but he still likes that he still has anger issues. Sometimes he'll post things on his Facebook that are probably not in his best interest, <laughs> you yeah, know, but, yeah. um, it's enough, uh, you know, 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, he vents a little bit. I, I can't blame him. Well, yeah, yeah. So what was your, putting you on the spot, what was your thought on this case? Like, what, what was your feeling that happened? What really you know, happened? I, was, I was never convinced, even, even before the new witness came forward, that, that uh, the Harris house was a crime scene. I, I just wasn't. You know, I, my background was in crime scene investigation, and, and what I was seeing certainly wasn't what I would expect to see at the scene of a, of a bludgeoning homicide, as, as alleged. There just wasn't any blood. Um, but, but, but there was two areas. There, there was an area on the garage floor, and there was an area inside the entryway into the house. And in between the two areas was like uh, six feet. And there was no blood in, in that six-foot span. But there was a couple of uh, these dark brown rugs laying there. That's where the dog is to sleep with in the garage. And then they'd been there for years. You could tell by looking at photos. They were worn and debris all over them and dog hair, but no blood. No blood. So, you know, so I asked myself, you know, how can that be? How, how does he get her? She's already bleeding in this uh, entryway where they claimed he first attacked her. And then, and then carried or dragged her out into the garage. But how does, how does he do that without leaving any blood in between? Or even if he couldn't see it on the rug, you know, why would he just leave the rugs there? Um, and the same thing in the entryway. In the entryway, there was a small little throw rug. I mean, this entryway was, comparatively speaking, about the size of a shower stall. It was pretty small. So their theory was that he, he attacked her. He was waiting just inside. As soon as she walked through the door, he whacked her. So she would have clump, crumpled right to the floor and started bleeding right on this carpet. But there was no, there was no passive dripping on the carpet. It, whatever. There was some specks of blood. But interestingly, the, the specks of blood were actually on the bottom of the rug. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it, so it made no sense to me that, uh, that he would have picked up the rug to, to clean up the blood or, uh, on the perimeter of uh, the tile and then, and then just turn the rug over upside down and put it back. It just, it just made no sense. But anyway, uh, I, was, I was certainly not convinced that, that it was a crime, a crime scene. But then when Kevin Tubbs came forward um, and I identified Stacey Stewart and, and everything related to him, uh, everything, everything was pointing to him. And, and then we had a, a, actually had a second witness that came forward, and uh, he saw something very similar to Kevin Tubbs, to totally independent of Kevin Tubbs. He was riding up the road with a companion, and uh, he described basically the same thing Kevin Tubbs had seen, uh, a, a guy and a woman arguing. In fact, he had his, he had a, he had his window down because his companion was, was smoking, and he heard, as he drove by, he heard the guy say, just get in the car, just get in the damn car. But he said, you know, it's none of my business. So he said, I just assumed it was a couple fighting, and then I went on my way. <laughs> so, but unfortunately, this man, even though I took a written statement from him and recorded the, uh, the interview, uh, he ended up dying on us before the trial. Oh, <laughs> 
So, so now, so now all of this information falls under the classification of hearsay. Right. So we, we weren't allowed to use any of it. But what, what he had done, uh, unbeknownst to him, he had, he had independently corroborated Kevin Tubbs and described, uh, uh, the almost identical scenario. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I was con- I was convinced that that Kevin Tubbs was was being truthful, which was corroborated by the second witness. His name was John Steele, and uh, and then and then when I started looking into Stacy Stewart, uh, everything just started popping up. One, one of the one of the interesting things was when when he was first interviewed by the police. Um, Back when it first happened, within, a, within about a week after she disappeared, they'd gone to this steel plant to interview these guys. And he had told them that, you know, he hadn't seen Michelle Harris in a couple of weeks. But he also told them that uh, when he went home uh, that night after 9-11, he called his mother in Texas. And then uh, the next morning, he went to work between 4 and 5 a.m. Well, his time cards like everyone else who worked there, showed that they, they don't start work till 6 o'clock. So initially that didn't mean much to me, and it didn't mean much to the state police because they thought she'd been killed around uh, midnight. But now I'm looking at it and I'm saying, you know, why is he telling the, poli- the police that he went to work at 4 or 5 when then they don't start till 6? So I, I started looking at him as, as a suspect that, that he was trying to alibi himself. Because when he was interviewed by the police, uh, he wouldn't have known what they knew. And, and, and if he was, if he was the one at the end of the driveway and he sees this farmer coming up with a hay wagon and they made eye contact and he saw him, he said, so he's thinking if the police know that, I, I, you know, he's got to come up with an excuse. So he tries to put himself at work at four or five o'clock in the morning. And everybody I talked to, all of his coworkers, his supervisor, the safety director, uh, they all said nobody ever came in to work that early. Um, yeah. If anything, he was late. They said. Yeah. <laughs> and they, the other, the other interesting thing was uh, when they finally looked at Stacy's phone records. He, he had a cell phone when he was in New York, and uh, now he'd been working in New York for about six months before this happened. He, he was he was a transient. They they'd actually recruited him from a steel plant down in Texas, him and some other guys, because they were just starting up this new steel plant here in New York. So he'd been working there about six months. So he'd been in town since like April of 2001. Um, But when you look at his cell phone records, uh, Michelle went missing on the 12th of September, and his cell phone record showed him calling uh, the steel plant on the 12th, 13th and 14th. Never once before had he, had he ever done that. So it never made any sense to me. Why would he be calling the calling work if he was at work? Right. <laughs> so, so it just made no sense. And then the, the, the office secretary there told me and the state police that uh, she remembered him calling in sick around the time Michelle disappeared. She couldn't remember the exact days, but she knew he had because she took the calls. And uh, But yet when you look at his time cards, there were no uh, sick sick day entries made on there. He, and 
they were uh it was a brand new business they were just starting up so there were no punch cards there it was it was all done on, on the honor system they, <laughs> where they, where they, they manage their own time yeah <laughs> so you know all of these things started popping up on me and eventually i i ended up uh actually i i uh got the help of another uh pi that i'd worked with with the state police and he retired and we we got together and went to Texas a couple of times to uh, to talk to these guys. Every time we talked to them, they 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 had different stories. Every time, yeah, yeah and, and they, they made stuff up. No, and then and later uh, when when Cal hired the the new attorney from Long Island, he he had his own investigative staff, and they they kind of joined in, and they uh, they went down, and they talked to him, and the same thing yeah, every time he come up with a new story. Um, but the, but I actually uh, I felt so strong about what I'd learned from uh, about Stacy Stewart that I actually uh, um, talked about it with his attorney, with Cal's attorney, and, and they said, you know, uh, I want to tell the state police about this so it, to see if they'll take the lead on this and and, and uh, follow through with it. I said I've taken it about as far as I can go without enforcement authority. So he said, well, you know these guys better than I do. How do you think they'll take it? I said, well, I just did. I don't. I said, you know, the fact that the fact that Cal's already been con- convicted, you know, they might just show me the door. But he says, I'll leave that up to you. He says, as long as you don't include anything about Cal and it's it's all about Stacy Stewart, I don't care if you talk to him. So I did. I went down and I talked to the lead investigators and uh, laid out the whole thing, everything I knew about him, and, and it just fell on deaf ears. Hmm. They weren't interested. They pretended to be interested, but well, of course, yeah, they'll they'll say face. Yeah. Wow. Quite a story. that was trouble. Quite that was story. troubling. That was very troubling to me because you know I I'd worked with some of those same people. I, I knew most of the investigators and troopers on the detail, and and, and this, this wasn't the state police that I knew, uh, and I, and I've worked on other defense cases both before and after that were investigated by the state police and I never had an issue. Uh, but this case really jumped out at me. And, uh, I, I think a lot of it had to do with the conflict of interest by this, by the lead investigator. It was a woman. Her name was Susan Mulvey. <laughs> and and her, her conflict was her, her, her father. And I, I found out this very inadvertently through Cal, uh, after he'd been indicted four years later, uh, we were just talking and, uh, during that conversation, uh, we kind of put two and two together, and it come to find out that uh, Sue Mulvey's father had actually worked for Cal Harris uh, years past, and, and he had to fire him. And he said it didn't go well. So there was already some bad blood there. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, of course, Mulvey, you know, didn't disclose that to anybody. And, uh, by the time we did learn about it, you know, the, the bell had been rung, so there, there wasn't much we could do about it. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Oh, great story. Um, uh, lots of twists and turns. Yeah, uh, for sure. Rec- recommend the book. Do you have a website as well people can go to if they No, not yet. I'm, 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 I'm developing one. Um, because what I want to do is, uh, when, when I, when I first wrote the book, I had, it was too big. I had some chapters in there that 
made for some real interesting word, word, uh, reading as part of the story, but it was just, it was collateral and I really didn't need it to tell the story. But, uh, I'd like to put those chapters on a website and, 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 uh, make them available to readers, uh, who are interested in learning more and, and make them, you know, available for free to read along with maybe some additional photos. So I'm, I'm working on a, on a website to do that. Um, and, but I, but I also developed an email address uh, specifically for the book, and that's uh, uh, David M. Beers. Author at gmail. dot com. If okay. anybody who, who reads the book, they got questions or comments or concerns, I'll entertain them the best I can. Um, yeah, but it, it is I'll an interesting me. book. Yes, certainly. I recommend it totally. We'll have the book linked up on the website so people can do one click when they're listening. So, again, the book is called Reign of Injustice, and the author is our guest, David M. Beers. Thank you for being here. Uh, You're welcome. Anytime. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.